The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Folks, I have no idea why this podcast didn't post on time. I don't know. I recorded it yesterday in the late afternoon, early evening, as has kind of been the case here during the uh, pandemic slash newborn slash toddler stuck at home slash child care extravaganza at the Bespers household has been going. You know, the shows have been posting in the three, four, five o'clock range Pacific time, which I, I realize is already the evening on the East Coast, and it's all sorts of weird different times across the world. And it's not when we usually did it. During the season, generally the pod posted either overnight or relatively early in the morning, 8, 9, 10 o'clock Pacific time. And then yesterday, I, I thought it posted, and it just it didn't. And so by the time I figured out what was going on, we were already into dinner and additional childcare bonanza, and then it, kids were asleep, and at that point, I just was screwed. So I needed to do different pieces of the show at different times, and <clears throat> I made the judgment call that it might just be better to say, screw it, we'll just post it the following morning. So here we are. This is supposed to be the Wednesday edition of Fantasy NBA Today, but it's now the both Wednesday and Thursday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. Here's the good news. Good news is I didn't miss anything. <laughs> There's nothing happening right now in the NBA, although uh, it does sound like some uh, practice facilities are actually opening. Kings are opening theirs on Monday. A handful of places opening on Friday. Another handful of places are targeting late next week as their opening time. And this isn't really much of anything. I know there's been executives from teams saying, look, this isn't this isn't really the beginning of the downslope towards the season. This is just making sure the players don't get so far out of shape that when teams do figure things out, when this when the virus is mitigated to the point that they can they feel like they can play some games and get some practices in, then at least the players will be within striking distance of in shape. Because that's the other part of this. If players are completely out of shape, it's going to take longer. There's going to need to be sort of like a full-on training camp before exhibition games, probably. I doubt it's going to be the regular season, but who knows. And that's before you get into actual competitive games. If if players are even a little bit close, I mean, every day is going to be critical in this. So you get these practice facilities open somehow. You get... Uh, the players in there with, I think they said there could be six members of the staff scattered across the practice facility, and then I believe no more than four players. So we're talking about, again, groups of 10 or less, which has been kind of the thing for this corona stuff. Uh, and then you you alternate. There aren't that many players on an NBA team, so you can knock it out in three or four chunks if you really wanted to. I'm guessing some players are going to want to go repeatedly. And they could do it, I mean, you could knock it out in one day. Get their group in, sanitize, get another group in, sanitize, whatever. And at least you then, you keep the players a little bit closer. You keep them in, not full game shape, They're, you're not going to get that without the whole team there, but you get them in, you know, not Thor from endgame shape. 
we'll see how it all shakes out. It's just it's nice to know that even something is happening, even if it's just to sort of keep players from going completely nuts. The fact that practice facilities are opening. Look, here's the thing. Even if team executives tell us this is not the downslope towards actually starting something, fine. I believe that. I believe that this is not the beginning of a process in terms of like a, a fully outlined plan. But at the same time, it is the beginning of a process because three weeks ago, none of these practice facilities would have been open. Five weeks ago, none of these practice facilities would have been open. So say whatever you want about it not being the start of something. It is the start of something because it's literally the only thing that's happened that moves these players and teams even a tiny bit, a microscopic inch, a whatever, a nano whatever, closer to actually playing basketball, even if it's not competitive. They're going to a place that's team-sanctioned that wouldn't have been open a month ago because they feel more confident that things, the numbers are sort of leveled off, and not that the, the virus isn't still spreading, but they feel these the teams, the NBA, whatever, the world at large, are seeing places all across the globe starting to figure out how to safely do small amounts of things. And this is a small thing. This is It's a small thing, but it's a big thing. So they can downplay it all they want, and I get it. They want to mitigate our hopes. They don't want people to be like, hey, practice facilities are opening games in two weeks. Yeah, it's not going to happen like that. But practice facilities are opening, which means there's some kind of handle on stuff. Very small. Very small. Very small. But some. I am Dan Bespris. This is Fantasy NBA Today. The Wednesday slash Thursday edition after completely biffing the finishing product and upload and whatever yesterday. I'm such a buffoon. If this has happened during an actual regular season, I would have been so upset that I definitely would have done the show at 2 in the morning. But you know what? We're in this weird nebulous in-between. I thought, screw it. We'll just, we'll just post it in the morning and I'll record some new segments and re- redo some of the middle parts. Which is an equally large pain in the... You know what, but whatever. It's my damn don't. It's my own damn fault. So no one to blame but myself. Today we continue to explore the Southeast Division. We've done Orlando. We've done Charlotte. We've done Miami. We're done with Florida. We're done with the Carolinas. We've got our nation's capital, and we've got Atlanta, Georgia, and that's where we're going. Tomorrow, we'll finish up the week with Washington. But today, the Atlanta Hawks, one of the most exciting young teams in the NBA that really couldn't win ball games. And this is despite, by the way, a number of players on that team taking pretty good steps forward. But one of the big changes for the Hawks, season over season, it's not like they were that much worse, but they they didn't really make the the moves forward that I think folks had hoped for. There was a lot of hype surrounding this team because they have some really interesting young basketball players. They won 29 games last year, went 29-53. and 53. Uh, This season, at the point of conclusion, the Hawks were 20-47. and 47. So they had 15 games left, which isn't many. 
And uh, to get to last year's numbers, they would have had to win 9 out of 15, which I don't think they did at any point during this entire season. They'd won 4 of their last 10. I heard some people saying, well, the Hawks were playing better with uh, with John Collins prior to the shutdown. And, you know, this is a true note, but still not that much better. Not enough to make a difference. They weren't good, guys. They weren't good. If you go 11-32 and 32 in your conference and your conference is the Eastern Conference, you're particularly rough. And if you go 6-27, and 27, I repeat, 6-27 and 27 on the road, you have the worst road record in the NBA, worse even than the Golden State Warriors who are actively trying to lose most of their ballgames. Hawks were better at home than the Warriors were at home. Atlanta went 14-20 and 20 at home. That's not that bad. It's like six games under 500. If they went six games under 500, both at home and on the road, you're almost a playoff team in the Eastern Conference. You're the nine seed right there. But they went 21 games under one under 500 on the road, and uh, you know that's the that is one of the key markers in sports. And this is like one of those you know John Madden state the obvious kind of old adages that we'd like to write off as untrue, but continues to be pretty damn true. And that is, young teams tend to be a lot better at home than on the road. And there's other factors that go into home road splits. Altitude being a big one for Denver and for Utah. Those teams are always significantly better at home than they are on the road. With, you know, some exceptions. Utah was not that different home and road this year. Denver was extraordinarily different home and on the road. Uh, teams that have sort of been there tend to be pretty good both places. Defense usually tends to travel relatively well, and we know the Hawks didn't really play any defense. Raptors were exactly 23-9, and both at home and on the road. The Lakers were actually better on the road than at home. They went 26-6 and on the road. But this isn't about those teams. This isn't about what goes into a home road split. This is about the Hawks not really taking the step forward that teams hoped for a couple of reasons. Number one, John Collins' suspension, that went into it, and it's possible they would have won, I mean, he missed 25 games. So if he plays those 25 games, I I mean, I don't know what the Hawks went precisely while he was out of the lineup. I don't have that number directly in front of me. But if they went, oh, I don't know, something like 8-17 and or 10-15 and or something like that, it's pretty reasonable to think they might have won an extra one or two games, and that swings the number pretty quickly from 20 and 47 to, say, 22 and 45. And then they only have to win seven of their last 15 games to get to last year's mark. Or maybe it would have been even better if Collins was around. Maybe they win an extra three games. In any event, that was a factor. John Collins' suspension for PEDs. That was a factor. Trey Young's improvement helped mitigate some of that stuff. He had a really strong year, made uh, leaps even from where he was towards the tail end of last year. Remember, he was inside the top 40 down the stretch last season, and that was where we were looking at and saying, look, if we're going to take a shot on one of these guards early, I I kept saying that I didn't really want to do Trey Young or Luka Doncic because I felt like they were getting pushed up the board a little bit too far. And I still, frankly, feel that way. But let's just let's break these guys down piece by piece, and, and we'll loop back around to Trey Young here in just a few moments. The other notes on the Hawks, 
They traded for Clint Capella midseason, and he didn't play for them, but you can't really put that on all of the losses since he wasn't there ever. But he'll be helpful when he's around next year. Uh, and then they just had this this grab bag of shooting guards, basically, that none of whom could clear the value marker if all of the other ones were healthy and on the floor, but each one of them has this weird little inside path to maybe some value. Maybe. Let's work our way down the list. We'll start at the top. John Collins, who missed 25 games with a suspension and played 41 of his team's 60... How is that even possible? Oh, 41 of their 67 games. Sorry, forgot about that. Got my got my numbers crisscrossed. Uh, missed one additional game, blended in there, but finished with 21.5 points, 10 rebounds, 2.4 combined defensive stats, 1.5 three-pointers on 58% shooting, and 80% at the free-throw line, just 1.8 turnovers. John Collins took the giant leap that everyone was hoping he would without the missed 25 games. Remember, one of the things we were looking at with Collins last year, because this was his third season in the NBA. His first year, he played 24 minutes a game. That was two seasons back. Averaged 10 points, 7 rebounds, 1.7 combined defensive stats. And for a lot of folks, I mean, any reasonable human being the following year would have said, look, his role is going to increase in year two. He, I believe, came into uh, last season with an injury that cost him some time. So that I wasn't big on the John Collins train last year, 2018, 2019, not this most recent campaign. But that was because you know how I stand on players dinged up coming into the season. And a lot of his stuff translated in a really nice way. He, you know, he played six additional minutes. His usage went way up, plus the extra playing time. So it was sort of like a double bonus in that category. Shot attempts went from 7.4 to 13.6. He took a bunch more three-pointers. His free throw percent went up. His rebounding stayed pretty much on track, uh, adding about 20% in most of his regular, well, you know, assists went up by about 20%. Rebounds went up by about 20%. So a lot of that stuff didn't change a whole lot. But then for whatever reason, and it's not like it was a limited sample size either. He played in 61 games, not this season, but last year, the previous year. And he just didn't get any steals or blocks. They vanished entirely. Everything else was great. 19.5 points, 10 rebounds, 2 assists. Great, uh, good field goal percent. Salvageable free throw percent. Was hitting a 3-pointer. Everything was trending in the right way, but there were no defensive stats at all. And it didn't make sense. Because his rookie year, he looked like a guy that was going to be able to get, I don't want to say a, a boatload of them, but damn it, certainly some. And so the question coming into this year was always, do we think these defensive stats rebound? As memory serves on this podcast, he was one of the guys that we did kind of like. I said, all right, he feels like a relatively safe pick. His ADP was about 31. He was clumped in with uh, a bunch of other big men actually going in that run. There was sort of like this, if you want to call Nick Vucevic the end or DeAndre Ayton the end of the early centers, then the next grouping of centers was generally guys like Miles Turner, Mitchell Robinson, Kristaps Porzingis, Draymond Green, John Collins, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. You could probably lump in there. Clint Capella and maybe LaMarcus Aldridge was sort of the next long run from about 25 to 40-something. 
25 to 45, if you want to call. Aldridge, I can't, still can't believe his ADP was 45. That was positively insane. But regardless, of those guys on this podcast, we said, yeah, John Collins should actually be, you know, relatively safe play in that spot. Because even, even without the defensive stats last year, he was still number 49. And so you figured, all right, this is a guy that's going to take one more small step forward. We don't know precisely where it is. Maybe an extra shot a game. One more field goal attempt. Maybe he plays an extra minute. Maybe the free throw percent gets a little bit better. There were all these little ways that he could go from top 50 to top 40. But then there was this crazy question mark upside where you said, look, his steals and blocks could not have possibly gotten any worse. Maybe this is who he is looking at him last year. Maybe he's a guy that's going to average a combined one steal and block despite his otherworldly athleticism. It didn't really add up. But maybe that was the case. And so you could draft him in the 30s this year with the assumption that, look, if everything just goes normally, he'll probably be around, you know, 35 to 45 range. Fine. Maybe he doesn't hit perfectly. But if those steals and blocks come back even a little bit, there's room to jump into second round territory. And as it turns out, not only did they come back, they came back in a big way for Collins. And he improved in his free throw shooting and he improved his field goal percent, and he increased his shot attempts, and he increased his three-pointers. So it was all this stuff. You got all these extra bonuses. Now, would this have stuck if he played all 60-some-odd games or if he made it through all 80 uh, without the suspension? It's hard to know. But I do think that this is more of a trend and less of a blip. Is he going to be number seven for an entire season? Almost definitely not. But this is a team that goes crazy high-octane offense. He's going to lose a lot of his opportunities for rebounds when Clint Capella comes back because Collins going to have to slide down and play uh, almost exclusively power forward. They can slide him over as the backup center. Uh, so don't try to tell me that Dwayne Dedman coming in was the guy that pushed him off his mark there. Dedman was only playing, what, like 20, 20 22 minutes a game with Atlanta? So that wasn't it. They're going to want Capella out there for closer to 30. So the number of sentiments is going down for Collins. That'll hurt his rebounding. It'll probably hurt his field goal percent. But otherwise, things I think are going to stay somewhat intact. You know, it seems like he's a guy. Maybe it hurts his blocks a little bit too. I love his game. I love his fantasy game. I think his outlook going towards next year has a very slight downward trajectory just because his opportunity, and we've talked about this before, big men need to be near the bucket. And if this is going to push him a little bit farther away, that's a net negative. Now, he can probably offset some of that with just his speed, his hustle, his leaping ability, all that stuff. He's going to get his dunks. He's going to get out in transition with Trey Young. It's going to be all right. But if this is a guy that's getting drafted like near the turn after posting this top seven per game number in nine category, if he's going at 12 or 13, you couldn't. No, I'm not doing it. I take a shot at him in the in the early 20s, but I don't think he's fallen that far. So this might be a guy that we actually feel somewhat, I don't want to say strongly against, but a little bit against. I don't think we end up with a ton of John Collinses just because he had such a great year. He's almost definitely going to get overdrafted. Same goes for Trey Young. I, this is a guy that could end up going in the first round. In places, I think he will go in the first round in eight cut category leagues, and he and frankly, he probably should go in the first round in eight category leagues. He was number seven in eight cat. 
He was number 18 in nine cat, which is pretty much right on where he was drafted this year. And so when I said, I think he's going too high, well, that was probably wrong. He was going right where he should be. Because with no John Collins for long stretches this year, it was Trey against the world. He took 21 shots a game this season. Whoa. That's a lot even by, by Trey Young standards. He took 15 and a half shots a game last year. And towards the end of last season, when he was inside the top 40, he took 18 and a half shots. So he even worked his way up from that number. He just took them all. Averaged 30 points a game, got to the free throw line a crap load of times. 9.3 assists, three and a half three-pointers, four rebounds. I mean, there's almost, I can't see him doing much more on offense than 21 shots a game. Presumably, John Collins is going to play the whole year. Presumably, Clint Capella is going to be around. They've got Herter, they've got Reddish, they've got Hunter. The young guys are ready to do stuff. I, I don't see how this team wins more games with Trey Young taking more shots. Distributing, sure. Do I think he gets up near 30 points a game again next season? I don't think that's the best thing for Atlanta. It's possible. He might stick around there. But I think he would probably rather do a little bit less. Don't, I mean, make no mistake, he's still going to have those crazy explosion games where he's, he's just going to start firing from 35 feet away. That's not going anywhere. But it's, it's about long-term averages. And over the course of a season, I think there's just going to be a little bit less of that. So expect his usage to stay somewhat similar, but I think funnel it a bit more into assists. I think you see Trey Young over 10 assists a game next year. Uh, I think the turnovers are going to stay exorbitantly high. I don't see, from looking at his numbers right now, I don't see how he gets from second round to first round. The real, the only path there, because points are not going up, threes probably not going up, rebounds not going up, assists maybe a little bit, but if, the, if those goes up, then points are probably coming down a little bit. Steals and blocks aren't going anywhere. Free throw percent was about as good as it's going to get. Turnovers could come down. If you get those from about five a game down to about four a game, that's a way to move a little bit earlier in the second round. And then the other thing would be, you know, can 43.5% from the field become 45? I doubt it just because of shot selection, but you never know. Those are the paths, is getting rid of a bunch of turnovers, improving slightly on field goal percent. That's how he gets from number 18 to number 10. That's the path. This is a guy that, listen, here's the thing. Even if the arrow is a tiny bit pointed down, it's not going down far. This is a guy who's going to be the motor on this team. They need him on the floor for pretty much everything. So even if he takes the world's tiniest step back, it's almost going to be negligible. I think he probably gets drafted around the turn as well. I think you probably see both Hawks guys go in that 10 to 15 range in nine category leagues earlier for Trey and eight. You get it. You you can make the adjustment there. And I, I'm, I feel safer taking Trey Young in that spot, even though he actually finished behind John Collins this year, because his, his, there's just no way he loses his attack mode. And what if he does improve on his efficiency? What if his field goal percent and or turnovers improve? If you take Trey Young at like 15 and he ends up at number 20, that's fine. Your team still did fine with it. You got your scoring, you got your assists, you got your threes, you got free throw percent. You'll have to take a low turnover guy somewhere along the way. What about Clint Capella? This is sort of weird because in Houston, he was the only man who could rebound at all. And he averaged 14 rebounds a game with the Rockets, playing about 33 minutes a game. With Atlanta, you've got 
what I might argue is a better offensive system for Capella because with Houston, as many points as James Harden puts up, I think that team gets more credit for scoring a ton of points than they actually deserve because the Rockets' offense tends to be a lot of ISO stuff. And yeah, they put up some big scoring games, make no mistake, because, you know, they're bombing three-pointers and they had these 140-point games. They're not low scoring by any stretch of the imagination. So again, I don't want you to get me wrong, but from a, hey, are we going to play any defense and are we going to run, the Hawks actually do have the slight advantage there. The Hawks played crazy tempo basketball and didn't bother to guard anybody. So it was fast on both ends. I could see Clint Capella putting up relatively similar numbers. Trey Young getting him looks, there'd be more fast break stuff for for Capella. With Houston, a lot of it was Capella in the pick and roll, and you'll see plenty of that here with uh, Atlanta as well. Clint finished at number 24 on a per-game basis in nine-category leagues, and that was with one of his worst free-throw shooting seasons at 53%. Uh, I could see him scoring more with Atlanta, I don't know if the rebounds stay at 14, but the steals and blocks should be pretty good. Field goal percent, he's got a shot to lead the league in field goal percent next year with the number of dunks he's going to be getting. I, I love Clint Capella as one of the centers that I think is going to fall a little bit. I don't think anybody trusts his health, and they may have at least a half-decent reason for that because, look, I mean, simple fact of the matter is he hasn't stayed completely healthy pretty much ever. 67 games last year, 74 the year before that, 65, 77 his second year in the league, but he's only playing 19 minutes a game at that point. Since he's been playing starters minutes, 74, 67, and then 39 this year, although some of it this season, you might argue, was just being careful. If Capella's happier, and it sounded like he wasn't super happy in Houston, we, we've seen this before, it does impact guys a little bit. You know, he took a step back offensively this year, probably because of Russell Westbrook. Go to a place where you get him an extra shot a game. You could easily see Capella back at 15, 16 points a game, 12 to 13 rebounds, one and a half to two blocks, 0.7-ish steals on crazy high field goal percent. I mean, he's a career 63%er from the field, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him shoot 65, 66% next year. I like Clint Capella a lot. He's not an old man, but he's probably going to make the old man squad. Tell you right now, because he's probably going to get drafted in the 30s or 40s. His ADP was 44 this year. Uh, yeah, I, dude, I'll, I'll throw him on my team. I got no problem with that. All right, let's 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 speed through some of these other guys a little bit, because uh, Jeff Teague is coming off the books, so we can forget about him. The other names on the Hawks that were worth monitoring this year were Kevin Herter, Cam Reddish, and DeAndre Hunter. And I think it's best to look at what these guys did basically over the team's last 15 games or so. Something in, in that neck of the woods. Now, if you, if you look at it and you just pull up each of the players' last 15 games, that's probably the simplest way to break this thing down. And here's why. Because it seemed like there was almost never a time when all three of those guys were on the floor together. When they were, things weren't that great for any of them. The shot attempts leveled off. It was like each one of them, they were given 12 shots apiece. It's like this coaching staff was like, you get 12, and you get 12, and you get 12. And when all of them were getting 12, when each was getting 12, I should say, none of them had enough. 
The closest among them, late in the season, and I think this is going to surprise some people, was actually Cam Reddish. It wasn't Kevin Herter. Herter had the nice stretch in the middle of the year when both Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter were out. That's when Herter was getting 13, 14 shots a game, and he was posting pretty good value. When I look at these guys, you have to look at what some of the upside and shortcoming situations are. And for that, we're going to look at the team's last 10 games where they had gone extraordinarily young. The minutes were pretty much all going to those guys. John Collins saw 36, Trey Young 36, Reddish 30, Herder 36, Hunter 34. That's a lot of minutes. Now, again, you'll see Clint Capella. That'll push Collins' numbers down probably, I mean, 36 minutes is a lot per game, but more than, I mean, you'll see Dwayne Dedman play fewer minutes. A lot of that is going to go to Clint Capella, so it's not going to impact the guys like Herter and Reddish and Hunter all that much. Hunter would be the closest, I would think, if they were just sliding guys down positions on the floor, but let's not worry about that too much. I don't think Clint Capella is going to have a massive impact on any of those three guys. Hunter's rebounds at 7.6 would be the first thing to take a hit. If John Collins slides down to the four and Capella plays the five and Hunter has to move a little bit farther away from the bucket. But it doesn't matter because even when things were going well for DeAndre Hunter, he was still sitting close to the edge of the top 200. He has the farthest to go of any of these three guys to get to a point of fantasy value because the dude shot 41% for the year. 76% at the free throw line for the year. And lately, when he was playing a ton of minutes, he was still at 41% from the field and 78.5% at the free throw line. When the minutes got huge for Kevin Herter, he was able to find his way into value because of a bonus assist situation. We talked about this ad nauseum during the season. He became the team's de facto backup playmaker anytime Trey Young wasn't on the floor. They brought in Jeff Teague to potentially take some of that load off of Young, but they didn't end up really liking what Teague was doing. He didn't play all that much, and it it sort of fell back on Kevin Herter's shoulders. You can look at Kevin's game-by-game breakdown, and it's pretty easy to see kind of what things were happening for him when the rest of the team was hurt and then what was happening late in the season. And these last few weeks... You saw him post assist numbers that were more like midseason when everybody was out. That's the key for Kevin Herter. If he's still going to be the playmaker when Trey Young is not on the floor, he can get inside the top 100. That's a relatively large if with the growth of some of the other guys around him, namely Cam Reddish. Cam Reddish played about 30 minutes a game down the stretch, and posted top 65 value in 12 shots a game, 16.5 points per game, 4 rebounds, 1.3 steals, 2 three-pointers, field goal percent unsustainably high over that stretch. Reddish shot 38% from the field for the year, but was at 50% over the last 10 games his team played. I mean, you go back a little bit farther... Reddish was at 47% over his last 21 games. So the questions now surrounding these guys are, and we'll go through them one by one, are are which of these guys are worth taking a flyer on in fantasy drafts next year? Where and why? DeAndre Hunter, I'm going to say no. 
I'm not really interested in him in a standard 12-team format. I think there's a chance he gets to value, but I don't see much of a path to upside. He has too far to go. I need more defensive stats out of him. They're not as high as you might think from someone with his athleticism. I need better percentages. Too many holes in his fantasy game to fix in one offseason. Cam Reddish? Yeah, I'll take a shot on him. I'll absolutely take a shot on Reddish because it looks like he was starting to figure out the NBA game a little bit. His field goal percent made a big leap. It was a lot better over the last month and a half, two months. I think his usage is going to tick up season over season. They'll want to use him more. We saw him getting threes and steals and able to do it with a good free throw percent as well. Not as many holes in his fantasy game. Not much in the rebounding or assisting departments, which we've talked about it before. As a shooting guard type profile... You need to be good in the percentages to offset what generally doesn't happen in assists and rebounds. But he can score. He can do it at, we saw late in the season, a relatively efficient clip. He can get you some steals and some threes. I would take him around that 100 mark when things start to get real Wild Westy. And then Kevin Herter who I didn't do this in any particular order, he's one that I would look at as kind of the last one on the list. He's a lot of three-pointers. His steals are not going to be generally as high as Reddish. Even though I know uh, over the entire year they weren't that far apart, but Herter did play five additional minutes per game over Reddish. If you wipe that out, if you match their minutes played on a per-game basis, which might be the case next year, then Reddish blows him out of the water in a, in a steal-per-game situation. Both guys can hit free throws. They both have that, that shooting guard profile. And for each of them, there's that one big looming question is, for Reddish, what's his field goal percent going to look like this coming year? And for Herter, it's what is the assist number going to look like this coming year? There's a chance they both hit. There's a chance that Reddish does shoot the ball well and Herter gets four and a half to five assists a game. There's a chance of that. There's also a chance that Herter averages three and a half assists a game and Reddish shoots 43% from the field. In which case, neither one of them is probably worth being on your fantasy team. But here's where I like Reddish more between the two. To me, he has a firmer base from an ability to score standpoint. He has more ways he can put the ball in the hoop. For Herter, it's generally dunks in the open floor and three-pointers. That's sort of it. They're in a whole lot in between for him. With Reddish, there is some in-between stuff. He has other things he's capable of doing. I think he's capable of creating his own shot a little bit better. So that gives me a tiny bit more of a Reddish lean. I like Cam Reddish's defensive stats more than Herter's. He averaged 1.6 of them in 27 minutes a game. Herter averaged 1.4 in 31 minutes a game. So, if you take that upside factor and say, well, what if Reddish plays four or five extra minutes this year? Yeah, that 1.6 combined defensive stats, that could go up to 1.8 or 1.9. With Herter, I don't see him going up from 1.4. And a half defensive stat a game is huge in fantasy. That's a couple rounds of difference between the two guys when you're talking about guys clustered near that top 100 mark. So I think Cam Reddish has a path to top 80 value. I think Kevin Herter has a path to top 100 value. I don't think DeAndre Hunter has a path to almost any value. That's where I stand right now. We'll certainly get better ideas on everything after off-seasons happen and training camps happen and you see who's starting and who's not. That could really be the starting lineup with one of those three guys on the bench. Question is, which one? 
it's probably Reddish coming off the bench. Because I don't know that they want him playing small forward. I think Hunter, they could throw out there as the small forward. But those six guys are going to be eating up the lion's share of the minutes for Atlanta next year. It's going to be a really easy team to handicap from fantasy standpoint because we know their fantasy games. We're talking about some slight areas of growth. And here's where we sit. Okay, well, let's, let's do lessons learned from this season from the Atlanta Hawks. Lesson learned is uh, usage is value. Trey Young had the ball in his hands every single time down the floor. Whether something good or bad happened, that's good if you have Trey Young on your fantasy team because, well, he's going to post points. He's going to post assists. He's going to get stuff. He also really figured out how to get to the free throw line. Other thing that we learned from Atlanta, shooting guards have a tough time maintaining fantasy value. They really do. Herder, Reddish, Hunter, that trio. Other thing. There's fantasy stats to go around. I think John Collins is drafted a little bit early next year. I think Trey Young is drafted a barely a little bit early, um, safer early, I think, with Trey Young. Clint Capella, I think, gets drafted too late. I don't know exactly where guys like Herder, Reddish, and Hunter get drafted, but I'm willing to take shots on uh, two of the three guys, Herder and Reddish, near that 100 mark. Reddish, my favorite of the bunch. Herder, number two. Hunter, a distant number three. Tomorrow, we'll wrap things up here on the Southeast Division with the Washington Wizards. I'm hoping to talk to some of our other hoop ball pros again next week. We'll have a last dance and a lesson learned episode on Monday, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is your Wednesday slash Thursday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. I'm sorry again, folks. I don't know what the hell happened, but it's out. You got it. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.